Recognized nationally for excellence in clinical care, Lord's Health System. It's time for Lord's Health Talk. Here's Melanie Cole. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease. While new therapies are helping more people survive cancer, they can also cause other issues such as heart problems. My guest today is Dr. Jay Rubenstone. He's a cardiologist with Lourdes Cardiology. Dr. Rubenstone, explain a little bit about the field of cardio-oncology. What's the evolution of it? How long has it been around? Well, first of all, thank you, Melanie, for having me speak. Cardio-oncology, in, in, in a sense, has been around for decades, but has now taken on a more formal effect. I would characterize it as a collaboration between cardiology and oncology. And what really has happened is the crossover of survival of cancer patients long enough due to the success of current trends in oncology that during their lifetime, they may experience the cardiac effects of their therapy. Let me say that in 2022, we will have 18 million cancer patients in the United States. And I characterize, as others do, a cancer survivor as somebody existing from day one of their diagnosis. And this includes not only adults, but adult survivors of childhood cancer. More people now, as they age after surviving their cancer, may cross over and now actually suffer the effects of cardiotoxicity. And cardiotoxicity really is the effects on the heart from chemotherapy and radiation. So our job in a collaborative effort with oncology is to diagnose this as early as possible, prevent it if possible, monitor for the onset during treatment, as well as manage the treatment in the acute setting, short-term and long-term, the effects on the heart. And long-term can be decades later. The primary purpose is to successfully help patients get through their treatment. That's the absolute short-term primary purpose. Uh, with Again, with increasing age and survival, more patients will begin to suffer the cardiac effects due to the cardiotoxicity of chemotherapy and radiation than their actual cancer. But I want to emphasize that the, the onset of cardiotoxicity is relatively low. Having said that, it exists and it must be monitored at all times with regards to the possible effect on any given patient. What are some of those effects, Dr. Rubenstone, as far as chemotherapy or radiation? How do they actually affect the heart? Well, when you talk about cardiotoxicity, um, first, the prototypes, I would say, of cardiotoxicity are the standard treatments for let's say, lung cancer, the anthracycline types, as well as breast cancer. And there's two types of cardiotoxicity. Uh, one can be permanent. One is characterized as possibly not permanent. But basically, we're talking about the effects on the heart. And the heart muscle itself is uh, affected by the toxic effects of the chemotherapy and can, in a sense, poison the heart muscle so that it no longer contracts normally. The common term is cardiomyopathy. And in this case, it really translates to congestive heart failure with regards to any individual patient. The same chemotherapy can affect the lining of the heart called the pericardium, causing pericarditis. It can cause an inflammatory reaction of the heart muscle called myocarditis. 
arrhythmias or irregular heartbeats, as well as affect the coronary arteries and accelerating the onset of coronary artery disease, the type that can lead to heart attacks. With regards to radiation, the onset is much later, but the effects of radiation can affect the heart valves. Again, the lining of the heart called the pericardium, the heart muscle itself, and again, the coronary arteries. The Toxicity itself, again, I want to emphasize, is relatively rare. But again, what we now know is that the effects can be acute, and some of the agents used by oncology can be short-term and onset and long-term. We have to monitor certain patients, particularly those that have received radiation, for decades, even into adulthood when they're survivors of uh, childhood cancer. In cardio-oncology, doctor, does the patient assessment begin before the start of chemotherapy or radiation by estimating that risk of cardiotoxicity? How do you begin this delicate balance of treatment starting with preventing some of this cardiotoxicity as it happens? Well, that's very interesting. If you said who is at risk, I would say everybody receiving chemotherapy or radiation. Now, those that are at increased risk, and it's interesting that we have found that the risk factors that make people more prone to the susceptibility of uh, toxicity are very much the same that we treat every day as cardiologists to prevent coronary artery disease or congestive heart failure, such as tobacco use, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, sedentary lifestyle. So when a patient begins chemotherapy, oncologists now are using certain studies, which I can touch upon in a minute, to look at the heart to see if there's any pre-existing issue or if the heart basically is normal. And depending on some of the agents used, there are protocols in place now for monitoring. Depending on the chemotherapeutic agents, they can be uh, every several months, every several treatments every treatment, or it can be based on the cumulative dose that the patient receives. That's how we begin to monitor. And one of the exciting areas is the evolution of strain echo, which now allows us to attempt to look at the earliest onset of cardiotoxicity before it has been obviously seen on prior studies. And that's probably one of the most exciting things and maybe a tipping point that in cardio-oncology that started this huge collaborative effort, which you can say theoretically has been there for decades, but has now evolved in quite an academic field. Well, that leads me into my next question beautifully, doctor. What types of care are involved in cardio-oncology? Does it require management of several aspects of care and improved coordination between providers? Yes, absolutely. And before I answer that, I would like to touch upon how we how we monitor and look for the onset of this, if you don't mind. Uh, first, I mentioned those people that are at, at increased risk, and it certainly is those people with the common risk factors for other forms of heart disease, which I mentioned. Also, if a patient is receiving multiple agents, if a patient is receiving a chemotherapeutic agent in combination with radiation, it tends to make them more susceptible to the onset of cardiotoxicity. In the past, echocardiography was the mainstay of looking and monitoring for cardiotoxicity. So, for example, a patient may have a baseline echocardiogram at the beginning of their therapy. 
and let's say the grossly ventricular function, which is the term that we use for how well the heart contracts, let's say it was normal. Then periodically, they may be assessed by echocardiography to look to see if there's any onset of cardiotoxicity. Unfortunately, at that time, if there was cardiotoxicity, you might say that the horse was out of the barn, meaning that we would see that the myocardium also, or, or at that time already, would start to show the effects, if not gross, overt congestive heart failure. So the patients were treated, but you might say that already they were on their way to uh, significant cardiotoxicity and possibly a poor outcome. Other studies were uh, dated studies, meaning MUGA scans, also CAT scans. The problem there is uh, CAT scan for monitoring uh, exposes patients to additional radiation. The conventional MRI and dated studies also can be expensive. With the onset of strain echo, it's in addition to echocardiogram. If a patient underwent an echocardiogram in the past and had the addition of strain, they would not know the difference. It's just something else we acquire. What's very exciting is it enables us to look at the earliest form of cardiotoxicity before the heart starts to grossly suffer. So what do we do at that point? Well, there's a number of things. First of all, we become very aggressive in monitoring their lifestyle issues, such as I mentioned, tobacco use, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, and et cetera. This should be done routinely in any patient uh, that is going to receive radiation or particularly chemotherapy. But at the onset, if we find early onset, right now, depending on the drug that we're using, there are standard medications that we can begin. And it's interesting because the medications that we can begin to use are the very same medications that we have used in congestive heart failure patients for decades of any cause. Anybody that has impaired contractility of the chambers of the heart, we have been using a pretty standard cocktail of medications such as beta blocker, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, uh, spironolactone, and drugs like that for decades. So where we are right now is very interesting because literature comes out every day from studies showing how do we apply these medications. Well, it may not be as we have conventionally done in the past because some of the chemotherapeutic agents may respond better to, for example, the beta blockers being started first versus the ACE inhibitors. But the treatment is interesting in that it is the same medications that as cardiologists we have been customarily using and comfortably using for decades. Along with, we continue to monitor the patient in collaboration with oncology. And this is probably the most important collaborative part of cardio-oncology. Knowing that the patient may have early toxicity, the oncologist has options to either change to other therapeutic agents possibly modify the dose, possibly hold the dose until the cardiotoxicity uh, is, is uh, less, and then restarting the dose. So it gives him a number of options to apply to his patient, along with early medical therapy from our standpoint. And again, as I mentioned very early on in my talk today, the primary consideration is to get patients through successfully through their chemotherapy because, as you can imagine, the bottom line is these are patients with underlying cancer and they need their chemotherapy, they need their radiation, 
to successfully combat their problem. How beautifully put, Dr. Rubenstone, and you make it so understandable. So wrap it up and summarize it for us. What would you like cancer patients to do to be a healthy survivor? What questions about cardiotoxicity and cardio-oncology would you like them to know? What steps do you advise them to take to protect their heart? Well, it's interesting. I guess I would say the first thing is something I would tell a a 16-year-old teenager if he said, what should I do at my age to prevent me from having heart disease? And I would tell him not to smoke. As he gets older, if he has high blood pressure, to be sure that it's treated and controlled. If he becomes a diabetic, then he has to have his diabetes extremely well controlled. And if he's obese and it's type 2 diabetes, to lose weight and to exercise. So those patients who acquire cancer who have not done that throughout their years, it is imperative that they do it at that point in time. No different than patients who I discover with run-of-the-mill coronary artery disease who may have been smoking and so forth that I tell them at that point in time, it is time to stop smoking, lose weight, have your diabetes and hypertension controlled. That is absolutely imperative. The second thing or maybe the most important thing I want to emphasize to cancer patients. No cancer patient hearing this talk should ever, ever refuse to have chemotherapy because of the fear of cardiotoxicity. And that's something I want to emphasize because it's always existed. Their susceptibility may literally be more now than before because of the success of their cancer treatment and the ability for them to live longer. And now more than ever, we are able to detect it earlier and possibly prevent it. So I want to reemphasize and I want to reiterate one of the most important things that I want to say to people who are listening to this, particularly those who develop or may have cancer, by no stretch of the imagination should this ever deter them from having radiation or chemotherapy. I really want to emphasize that to uh, whoever listens to this talk today. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruben Stone, for sharing your expertise. What a wonderful segment and what an interesting field that you're in. Thank you so much for explaining it so very well for us. This is Lord's Health Talk. For more information, please visit lordsnet.org. That's lordsnet.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.